As we prepare the fifth series of the 50 Faces podcast for 2023, we are bringing you a special treat of an updated conversation with Dr. David Kelly of JP Morgan, whom I talked with at the end of August. Tune in as we cycle through topics as varied as the problem of predictions, why falling interest rates create greater wealth inequality, whether AI is on a hype cycle, whether we are higher for longer when it comes to interest rates, and the real value of central bankers. We are also left with a few more irresistible soundbites to feed our future discourse. Please enjoy my second conversation with Dr. David Kelly. Here we are at the end of August in a quite a year which I'm kind of rendering the comeback kid of a year after the disastrous 2022. So I suppose the first question is around prediction and where we are versus where everybody it seemed thought we would be at this midpoint in 2023. Why do you think that so many pundits got 2023 wrong? And what does that tell us about the new regime? Well, first of all, on the economy, I think it's really difficult to get this exactly right because Everything is being affected by the legacy of the pandemic. I think the single most important economic number for the last two years has been the number of job openings. The fact that we got up to 12 billion job openings, we've still got nine and a half billion job openings. What that does is it gives an extra momentum to this economy. It almost gives us an immunity against recession. It's been causing solid job gains throughout this year, even though the economy has been dealing with various headwinds. So I think that's one big positive. And then I think the other thing is some people, you know, initially they thought inflation was transitory. Then they swung to the other side and thought inflation is not transitory at all. And it's going to hang around for a while. And I must say that we thought there that inflation would come down and it has come down. So I think we got that part right. But the resilience of the economy itself has been surprising, particularly after the regional banking crisis earlier on this year. And I think part of the story really is just how much excess demand there was for labor in the economy as we went into this year. And of course, all that has, has contributed to the financial market narrative so far this year also. And I suppose just backing up, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about labor as well as about the situation around the inflation a little bit later. But just in terms of this, because so many, we were looking at inverted yield curve and saying that that was a, some kind of a signal of, a, of a, usually a sign of a recession. There's been a lot of discussion around what rates mean for value equities or growth equities, and that hasn't transpired. So do you think it's possible that some of the traditional relationships have just gone away or they should no longer hold because fundamentals and markets are too different? And even monetary policy not affecting demand greatly, has that transmission effect changed? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, on the issue of signals and reliable signals, absolutely these things have changed. So for example, on the inverted yield curve, the Federal Reserve never used to say where it intended to push interest rates in the long run. They only started doing that around about 2011. And since 2011, there has never been a time when there's been a greater gap between where rates are now and where they expect them to be in the long run. Because right now we're between five and a quarter, five and a half percent. In the long run, they think we're going to be at two and a half percent. So if the Federal Reserve is actually telling you that no no matter what the economy does, or, or regardless of the exact trajectory of the economy, they're going to be bringing rates down. That's going to give you an inversion in the yield curve anyway. And it doesn't have to be predicated on a recession. The other thing is that usually, and I would argue 
more sensibly, the Federal Reserve sort of should gradually push rates up to a level and then let them sort of play out to see if that brings the economy down to the correct pace. What they've done this time is they've deliberately overshot. They've deliberately said, we're going to push interest rates to too high a level and then bring them back down again. And so I think all of that is having a huge impact on the yield curve itself. So I think that indicator is kind of by the board. And then the other thing is, you know, even the index of leading economic indicators, which is a very grizzled old way of looking at the economy, that's been predicting very negative things all year. But that is itself affected by interest rates. It's affected by the money supply, but that's being affected by quantitative tightening, which is, again, you know, a different situation than we've had in the past. And it's leaving out a whole pile of the economy or a big part of the economy, which is all this investment in technology and AI, in green technology, all this investment spending that's really, I think, powering the economy forward really isn't showing up in the index of leading economic indicators. So I'd be very cautious about using traditional metrics to try to predict the near-term direction of the economy. Well, I love that grizzled old economic indicators. I, I think the problem is people keep relying on them over and over again. They may have run their course. They may no longer ever be usable again. Maybe they'll return so that we can recycle them at some time. We can't look at them. What can we look at? And do you see any developing indicator that's better in terms of what are you looking at today? Because you will be asked to make predictions still, even if we know it's difficult. Well, I mean, it, it sounds boring, but I look at the whole picture. I, I don't believe in single indicators. You know, it's a, I mean, I realize that single indicator is very nice for making a chart for the front of the Wall Street Journal because you can show one thing going up and coming down and saying something else is going to go up and come down. But that's a very two-dimensional view of the world. I try to look at it in a multi-dimensional way and, and reserve judgment, particularly when you've got so many distortions still lingering from the pandemic. So I think there are a few things you have to look at. First of all, I am looking carefully at this job openings number as it comes down and its interaction with payroll employment. I think that's very important because at some stage, the immunity caused by excess job openings is going to go away. It'd be nice to know where that is. I think we're also looking very closely at what's going on in inflation, particularly when it comes to shelter and when it comes to transportation services, which are affected by high vehicle prices. We know that inflation is going to roll over, but how fast is it rolling over? Another thing we're looking at is how much wage growth are we getting out of this tight economy? The Fed seems to believe the, the unemployment rate needs to be above 4% to get to the right level of wage growth. I'm not so sure that's the case. I think you could maybe run this economy 3.5% without that. We're trying to look at the relationship between the unemployment rate and wage growth. So we're looking at all these things real time. We're looking at different parts of the economy. We're looking at different parts of the global economy. And what I'd say is that right now, it's a mixture of positives and negatives, but you have to add them up carefully. If you add them up carefully, you still see an economy which has got enough momentum to avoid recession this year. You know, eventually we will fall into recession, but for the moment, it looks like we get through this year into next year without recession, and we clearly see an economy where inflation is falling despite a very tight labor market. But we have to just be very nimble and, and flexible when we look at how to think about this economy right now, just because it's such a different economy from the economy in this sort of pre-pandemic era. And I want to go back to an analogy because you have the most wonderful analogies in the business, I think, that I, I rely on. And you talked about the playground slide about inflation, how it goes up steeply, but comes down gradually. And I was kind of likening that almost to like a green ski slope. It doesn't come down. You know, they may even have some moguls, some bumps in there. How do you see inflation coming down? I mean, it actually came down pretty quickly, but maybe it's going to go, pop back up again in just in the last print and to fall into the 3% range. Do you see that playground slide analogy playing out now? 
See, that's the great problem with analogies. People can remember the analogy, but they can't quite remember what I was referring to. So actually, I do refer to the unemployment rate as being like a playground site. The unemployment rate tends to go up 2% per year on the way up. It comes down 1% per year on the way down. Now, the pandemic was kind of a weird surge in unemployment. So the whole thing played out in, in fast motion. But the inflation rate actually looks much more like the Eiffel Tower. It's almost completely symmetrical when you have a spike. And we saw that in the 1950s and 1970s, and we're seeing it this time around too. And if you look at a chart of the, the inflation rate, it looks very symmetrical. It looks like a, a rather tall haystack right now, but it is symmetrical. And I think it's going to continue to come down in that way. I think the last bit of it is going to be a little slower. So I think by the end of this year, we're going to talk about a consumption deflation inflation rate of about 3%, maybe 3.1%, 3.2%. And then by the fourth quarter of next year, we're talking about a consumption deflation inflation rate of 2%. So getting rid of that last percent is going to take a whole year, we believe. But overall, it's very much on track to come down. And it is behaving as you'd expect it to behave based on the past behavior of inflation spikes. That's a great one. I have another analogy, which I think I got right. You spoke about the swamp and this recession being, being like a swamp. And I suppose I'd like to just dig into that a little bit more. We know it's not happening in 2023 now. I think you were pretty early in saying and calling it not happening this year. When it happens, the swamp, not a cliff edge. Yeah. I want to ask particularly about default rates and bankruptcies. And I've heard a view, which is that there's a lot of you know, distressed funds, perhaps, that are wishing for the 08 era when they could pick over the carcasses of massive bankruptcies and distressed situations with lots of embedded value because they were oversold. We've had a lot of extending, a lot of pretending, a lot of cans being kicked down different roads. When it comes to distress, and we've seen some quick intervention around, say, the regional banks, mm-hmm. and definitely a trigger-happy regulator who likes to intervene and bail out. Do you see that we will have a distress cycle? We've had some bankruptcies, but not many. How do you see that playing out, especially as interest rates stay high? Well, that really gets back to the swamp analogy, because the answer is I don't expect anything like what we saw back in 2008, 2009. And for the reasons you, you, you stated, I mean, one of them is that we do have regulators who are much more willing to intervene. 2008 was a huge lesson to the Federal Reserve and the federal government. I remember that famous weekend for Lehman Brothers went under. There was a lot of murmuring and editorials about drawing a line in the sand, and then all the sand disappeared beneath their feet. And that really told them, look, there's a time to think about moral hazard. There's a time to think about sending a lesson or a message to markets, but it's not when everybody's in distress. And so what we've seen since then is the Treasury, the Federal Reserve have been very active. When they see a problem crop up, they snuff it out. And that's one thing I do think the Federal Reserve is very good at or can be very good at. I think if you have a money tree out back and you can print money and and supply unlimited liquidity, you can deal with banking crises. You can deal with confidence crises. You may not be able to direct the pace of economic growth or even the pace of inflation, very well in the long run, but you can deal with crises. So I think that willingness to intervene completely changed with what happened in 2008. And I think that's one protection we have. The other protection we have is that I don't see at the moment a big downdraft in economic activity. If you look at vehicle sales are running at about 15 and a half million units, which is actually lower than it was before the pandemic. If you look at housing starts, we're well below pandemic levels or pre-pandemic levels. If you look at inventories, companies have been very careful to chip away at their inventories. We don't have 
too much inventory anywhere. If you look at investment spending, we do have some areas of commercial real estate where there's too much building going on, but there are other areas where there's the, you know, they're building like crazy for good reason. And then you look at other parts of investment spending, people are spending a lot on AI to try to deal with, you know, to substitute technology for labor. So I look across the whole economy and I don't see that big overbuilt sector, which is big enough to drag the economy into trouble. Now, doesn't mean it couldn't happen. You could still get hit by some sort of economic meteorite. Something big could happen that puts us into a more serious recession. But right now, it looks like we're teetering on the edge of a swamp rather than a cliff. I love that economic meteorite. I just come away with these conversations with so much in terms of these memorable words. Looking then at nothing being overbuilt. So one of the questions that we hear about is AI. I spoke with Kathy Wood recently, pushed her a little bit on that because she's clearly been discussing the back to the future analogy that AI would free us all to go back to the future, thinking about the future and less about data crunching on the past. There is a discussion around whether there's a hype cycle in markets, certainly betting against those big tech stocks would have been folly. All eyes have been on NVIDIA this week, and it you know, seems to have no end in sight in terms of its growth. What do you see that in terms of whether this is a hype cycle, whether we're going to have a bit of a correction relating to that, and how it transforms, I suppose, behaviors? That's a very broad question, but take yeah. it any way you want. I think it's important to distinguish between, say, the tech bubble you know, of the 1990s from, say, blockchain and, and Bitcoin. So the tech bubble of the late 1990s was a bubble in terms of stock prices, but there is no doubt that the development of internet technology changed the world, changed it profoundly, and did cause huge increases in productivity, even if those, some of those don't show up in, in the government data. It really changed the way we live our lives. What wasn't clear then, and is not clear now, is that it was possible to isolate the specific firms that would do very well from that and would be able to sort of ring fence their, their cash flows. And so what happened was, in that era, there were a few firms that eventually did very, very well, and many, many more that basically sunk and disappeared and were never heard from again. But it was real in terms of the economic effects. Now, blockchain, I still think it was very overhyped in terms of its real economic effects. It's certainly cryptocurrencies aren't actually used as currencies anywhere or anywhere meaningful. And, and, and so I think that that was 90% hype and won't change the world. But let's talk about AI, which in, in that range, where does AI fit in? I think AI will change the world. You know, one of the most profound things that somebody said to me in, on one of my own podcasts on this was that English will be the programming language of the future. I thought it was just a throwaway line. And then I was thinking about it. And you know what? It really is very, very important because one of the great limitations to technological advance at this point has been that the people who could actually implement technological advance had to be computer scientists to have extraordinary abilities to code and, and interact with the machines that they're working with. But if you could build machines that can take simple English orders, whether they be computers or robotic machines later, they can take orders from the manager at the, at the local Costco who says, you know, could you please take the boxes from aisle 23 and put them on a shelf on aisle 15? And AI can A, understand that command and then implement it. There are very few jobs in the world that won't be impacted by that. I think you can, you can advance productivity tremendously through AI, but I think it empowers a lot of workers to participate in this. And if AI learns as it goes along, and particularly if we can marry it with various kinds of robotics, which is, you know, and there are some limitations there also, of course, 
But I, I do think it will have a profound impact on productivity and lifestyles in the decades ahead. So I think there's no hype around the trend. I think it's, it's a huge, huge trend in terms of human civilization. There could well be some hype around individual stocks. You've got to tread very carefully because there are many stocks which are priced, obviously, at multiples, which don't make any sense at all, unless you know that this is the winner that's going to be able to build an immense growth in, in revenues and income for many, many years from this. And those companies are very, very rare. I suppose just tied to that then. So clearly, if the hype is real, and most of the ways to get exposure to that on an equity standpoint is via the US stock market, the US seems to continue to dominate global portfolios. My European contacts don't seem to have a problem with that because they have global portfolios anyway. They like the boost it gives them. But a US dollar investor, my question at this point, why would I be anywhere else other than the US? It's continued to drive the global economy. It's continued to drive global stock markets. Why bother, essentially, outside? And, and how do you sort of see that question? I must say I've been somewhat disappointed by what's been going on in Europe so far this year, and to some extent China, although maybe that was a bit more predictable. But you know, I think longer term, U.S. equities are a lot more expensive than non-U.S. equities, and I believe in diversification. I think in the, it doesn't make sense that, that over 60% of global stock market capitalization should be in the United States. So I think it makes sense in the long run to have exposure overseas. I will admit that so far this year, we've had a problem in Europe, and that's a huge part of global equities outside of the United States. The European economy is just chugging along. It's not really booming at all. Now, the unemployment rate is coming down, but growth is slow. And part of that may be a knock-on effect from Ukraine, knock-on effect from energy prices or electricity prices. But there, there's certainly a lack of animal spirits in European business right now. And then, of course, the other big part, and for many years, the, the dominant part of the international conversation has been China. And China is in a very difficult position because it has a real estate bubble, which I would argue is very similar to the real estate bubble in Japan in the late 1980s. Prices are too high and too much of consumer wealth is tied up there. And consumers are scared, A, that their property is going to go down in value, and B, they're not quite sure what the government's doing. And so you can see how China's slowing and why China's slowing. And you can see how difficult it's going to be to get, get out of that. So with China and Europe both on the ropes, so to speak, I think that the argument you can make for US equities gets a little stronger. However, I still think the US dollar is too high. I think it'll come down over time. And I think there are other international opportunities. Japan is booming for once. And India is also booming. So I think you can see international opportunities. And I think US investors will be very well advised to invest around the world. Because the reason you diversify, and this is really the key, the reason you diversify is not because of what you expect. It's because of stuff you don't expect that ends up biting you. And I'm not, I really want to avoid politics here, but whichever side I'm talking to, both sides, I think, would say that the November elections in 2024 are pretty important. So if you think that that outcome is going to go, you know, have consequences for the US economy, then that's a reason why you ought to think about being diversified around the world. So, and there are many other things, of course, which could affect the United States. So I would still want that diversification, although I admit that the relative performance of the US, European, and Chinese economies in the first half of this year really do favor the US, and the US has proven remarkably resilient given all its challenges. One of my theories on China is because it removed itself essentially from the global scene for longer than others, their COVID shutdown was far longer, more stringent, almost to the point of sort of a surreal, brave new world type scrutiny, surveillance of, of citizens, that did it remove itself from relevance? 
because it, it was out of the action for so long as a trading partner, et cetera? And have we now moved on kind of making do with resourcing elsewhere and not needing it as a force in global markets? Yeah, I don't think it's so much because of the effect that COVID had on Chinese production. I think it much more has to do with questions that people have had about the direction that President Xi was taking China in. How committed, you know, for the decades following the death of Mao Zedong, we saw China continually opening up, becoming more willing to engage with the rest of the world, wanting to engage with the rest of the world, wanting to succeed economically. And President Xi is a much more a nationalistic Chinese leader. He's consolidated power. He has various views on how China should move forward. He seems much less engaged with the rest of the world. And he's dealing, frankly, with a more complicated world because he, on the one hand, he's got this megalomaniac and Vladimir Putin beside him, and he doesn't know what to do with him. And you know, secondly, there's a lot of negative feeling about the Chinese government, partly coming out of the origins of COVID. We can't discount that altogether, but also I mean, just Chinese secrecy about what went on. So I think China's in a defensive position, but I don't really think it's because of the effect that COVID had on production. I think it's much more people are just not quite sure about the attitude of the Chinese government in the long run. I think that is causing people within China to hesitate to spend and people outside of China to hesitate to invest. One of the other commentators, Howard Marks, has talked about a sea change in post-COVID era, and that a lot of that was related to how people live, how they work, and their attitude to risk. Some of that maybe was now has been upended with the way markets have performed in 2023. We do seem to be in a higher for longer environment, and that's the higher interest rates for longer. That seems to be what most central banks at least want us to believe. I suppose my question is, if this is the new normal, the higher for longer, what do you think we'll have to adjust? From an asset class standpoint, behavioral standpoint, with credit provision standpoint, borrowing standpoint, with higher for longer, what does that reality look like? Well, I, I don't really agree with the premise, actually. I don't think we're higher for longer. I think, as I said, I don't think a recession will start this year. But we are at full employment. And when an economy is moving along at full employment, it grows at a slow pace. It grows you know, 2% or less. And we're basically one big banana skin away from recession. Sooner or later, something's going to go wrong. Now, the Federal Reserve itself says that they are in a tight mode, that they've raised interest rates to a level which represents a restrictive monetary policy. I think that when the economy actually goes into recession, even if, you know, sometime in 2024, maybe sometime in 2025, but within the next two or three years, it's very likely to go into a recession. When that happens, the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates. And if I'm right that inflation is lower also, then the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates significantly. So I don't think we're going to get back, I hope we don't get back to the zero interest rate environment prior, or zero real rate environment prior to the pandemic. But I don't think that we're going to have to deal with this level of interest rates or high interest rates, high real rates for a long period of time. If we did, then I think it has obviously profound effects for asset prices, particularly for real estate prices. And I think real estate would be in a tailspin for some time. But I I don't really think it's going to work out that way. I think that the Federal Reserve is going to have to react to economic weakness. And so we're going to end up in a sort of middle ground where money isn't for nothing, but rates are still a good deal lower than they are today. And even if we're not higher for longer, do you think we will settle, though, at higher than the, the lowest, almost essentially free money that we had before? Yes, I, yes, I do yeah. think so. I, I hope that the Federal Reserve has learned their lesson. I mean, they don't show many indications of learning their lesson because they don't admit the distortions that they've caused in global financial markets and global 
real asset markets by having zero interest rates for so long has been terribly damaging. I mean, it's increased inequality to a huge extent because you know wealth inequality is worse than income inequality around America and around the world. And, and what zero interest rates do is they increase wealth inequality. So I think the Federal Reserve has done a lot of damage here by being overly active in monetary policy, and they would do damage again if they were to push rates down to zero. And I think to some extent they are sobered up a little bit on that. So we'll see how, how this plays out, but I don't expect them to come down to zero interest rates, particularly, by the way, because I don't expect to see a big recession. If we had a 2008-2009 type recession, we had a great financial crisis again, then all bets are off and the Fed heads to zero. But if we have a mild recession, I don't think they'll cut rates to zero. Just I want to just pull on that thread a little bit. So why is it that you believe the zero interest rates contributed to wealth inequality? Was it the cheap and easy access to leverage that enabled? Well, there are a few parts. This. So the first part is that, as I said, wealth is very much controlled by richer people in America to start with. So the top 10% of households control about 50% of the income, but about 75% of the wealth. The biggest thing that happened was when you had zero interest rates, home prices shot up. And with home prices rising and rising and rising, that meant that there were huge equity gains for those who happened to be homeowners. But it also, of course, pushed up rents for those who happened to be renters. And so that, I think, drove a big wedge. And then you sort of closed the trap when you then re-pushed up mortgage rates again. So now people who might have been able to get on the home ownership ladder in the, in the United States just can't do it. And so I think that it has driven a wedge in terms of wealth between those who are lucky enough to own a home at the start and those who don't. And equally, so much of stock market wealth is concentrated among upper income individuals. If suddenly stock market wealth shoots up relative to income, that is also increasing inequality. So I think that's sort of part of the story here. And I think also, you know, right now, the Federal Reserve has got the notion that wage growth is unacceptably high and that it's contributing to higher inflation. Now, personally, I think wage growth is merely compensation for high past inflation and the Federal Reserve should let it play out. But they seem to believe they need to get the unemployment rate up to 4% to, to snuff out wage growth. But of course, we, we had decades in which real wages were losing to profits. So we've seen profits rise as a share of GDP, wages fall as a share of GDP. And again, that is fundamentally increasing inequality because the people who are the ultimate beneficiaries from higher profits are stock owners. The people who are the ultimate victims of low real wages are workers who don't have a lot of Assets. So the Federal Reserve seems to want to snuff out wage growth. And when it has returned briefly after decades really in which wages were losing share relative to other factors of income. So I just don't think they realize how much they have actually contributed to rising inequality. But I think they have through this zero rate policy and then snapping back in the other direction and sort of locking a lot of younger households and renting households out of the possibility of home ownership. And I just want to bring the conversation close to an end, but I think we're on a very interesting, not often discussed topic here around inequality and I suppose what it means for policy and what that means for markets then. Because we're both from Ireland, there's a housing crisis in Ireland, you know, that is not translated yet into a rising homelessness problem, but it is certainly creating economic issues. Homelessness, on the other hand, is definitely rising across every city we look at today, and whether it's London and or San Francisco, Chicago. We have tent cities rising up in our parks. Yeah. This, these type of inequalities. And on the other hand, we have a number of, a lot of clients looking to find out how they can minimize their tax burden, whether it's through tax loss harvesting when appropriate or, or other mechanisms. So in a way, something has to give. 
we can't have the wealthy trying to pay less taxes. And on the other hand, these rising inequalities with the policy problems that they create. How do you see some of this crunch perhaps arising? Or what kind of resolution do you think that politicians are going to try to put in place? Well, I don't know that we will get any resolution anytime soon of these issues. But in terms of the economic impacts, one of the big impacts of rising inequality is it's actually reducing inflation. Because the biggest difference, in fact, in terms of consumer behavior between the rich and everybody else is the rich save more. And so what we've seen in the last few decades is the top 10% of households have got more and more of the income, and they've been funneling it into buying stocks and bonds and houses. The other 90% have had a smaller share of income, and they normally spend all of their money on buying goods and services. This has actually been a lack of demand for goods and services, except during the pandemic and its immediate aftermath. So if we get back to an environment in which inequality is continuing to rise after the pandemic and the, and the sort of transfers during that, I think it'll tend to pull inflation down. We're going to be starved of demand for goods and services while there's still plenty of demand for financial assets. So I think that's one of the biggest impacts of rising inequality is to reduce inflation pressures. How does it get resolved? I don't know that it does get resolved because in America, you would think that with huge inequality, the access would be between the political tension would be between those who have and those who have not. But the political tension in America is all about cultural issues, issues which are frankly, in many cases, irrelevant to the lives of, of most Americans. But that is what we are divided on. We're divided on cultural issues, on personalities. Again, I don't want to get deeply into it, and I try to walk the narrow line between the parties to the extent that I can. But so long as we argue about cultural issues, religion, nationalism, those sort of issues, rather than economic issues, we won't see any attempt to try to tackle inequality. Now, I don't really think higher, you know, inequality can be tackled easily just by raising taxes on the rich anyway. I've never, never believed that. I think you, the real question is not why are the rich rich? The much more important question is why are the poor poor? And that means grasping a lot of rather difficult nettles, to use an Irish expression, to try to deal with these very difficult social issues. But I don't think they're going to get any attention at all. And so, you know, in the long run, that is politically destabilizing. You end up with populist movements that doesn't tend to work out well in U.S. history. But at the moment, I think inequality is going to continue to rise. It is somewhat disinflationary. It's one of the reasons I think inflation is going to come down. But it's not nice to see in society. And it does potentially destabilize society in the long run and make a life pretty miserable for too many people. Well, certainly a topic of a whole other podcast there, but thank you for those insights. And my last question, just if I don't mind, I'm stealing an extra piece of time, is the so what question that we always liked to put. So we've had this great discussion of Federal Reserve policy, inflation, recession, and when, and what it's going to look like. For asset allocation standpoint and the work you do with clients, have you seen anything being tweaked around the edges? What do you recommend in terms of whether this will be time to put more in cash, more in bonds? less in non-US equities or more into alternatives. Has anything changed notably in your asset allocation advice? I think, first of all, bonds are actually worthwhile now for the first time in a long time. I think if you're getting more than 4% on a 10-year treasury, four and a quarter percent, you know, at some stage, the economy is going to crack here, and then you're going to see a big fall in long-term interest rates. So you're going to get a capital gain at some stage. And in the meantime, you're getting pretty good income out of fixed income. So I would say, you know, despite it not doing terribly well so far this year, I would be long duration fixed income just waiting for the opportunity to make a capital gain when the economy falters here. Uh, within equities, 
I do think about valuations. And so even though you know, U.S. equities had a very good year so far, and certainly the AI revolution it favors some U.S. companies, I would still want to be diversified r- around the world. And just make sure the movement in markets doesn't knock your asset allocation off from where you intended it to be. Because what happens is when you have a very good year for, say, U.S. stocks, and suddenly you look down and you realize that U.S. stocks are a much larger share of your portfolio than when the year started. And so it's difficult to maintain that discipline to be diversified. And you don't want to be generating a lot of capital gains along the way if you can avoid it, as you want to keep Uncle Sam's mitts off it if you can. But still, I think it's, it's important to be diversified because these are good times. We've had the inflation come down, unemployment's very low, stock market's up, you can get good yields and bonds. These are good times. But something could easily go wrong. Eventually, something will go wrong. And I think you want to be diversified to protect yourself against that and also to be set up for you know, good, good income and good total returns in the long run. Well, it has been a fascinating discussion, wide ranging. Apologies in advance for misremembering some of your analogies, but it's only because they're so good and that I apply them elsewhere. And also for the wide, wide ranging set of topics that you've been kind enough to comment on. It's been fantastic. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice and all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest.